Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today, we welcome Jerry Hatfield. Jerry is the retired director of the USDA ARS National Laboratory for Agriculture and the Environment in Ames, Iowa, and his bio illustrates his passion and knowledge for helping growers improve their agronomic systems. Much of Jerry's focus has been on the evaluation of farming systems and their response to water and nitrogen interactions across soils and remote sensing methods to quantify field variation. A platform for his research utilizes the genetics by environment by management concept as a framework to work with producers to demonstrate how they can increase their production efficiency, increase soil health, and develop resilience to weather and climate variation as the foundation for food security. Today, he and Monty dive into all those topics and many more. So let's get started. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. I am just honored to be joined by Dr. Jerry Hatfield today. I've known Jerry for a long time, and he's done just some amazing work in really moving the agricultural paradigm forward. So, Jerry, welcome. Glad you could be here. Well, thanks, Monty, and it's it's my pleasure to be here as well. And it's just anything that we can do to... Um, get information out to producers to get them to think and ask questions and uh, do something, uh, even even increase their curiosity uh, has uh, has benefits to all of us. Well, Jerry's been with the USDA ARS for a long time. Uh, I remember director of the Soil Filth Lab at, at uh, Iowa State University, located at Iowa State University. And uh, he's a retired now, but uh, you don't do retirement well, do you? Uh, no, I probably, as my wife says, I, I've probably failed at retirement. Uh, I spent a lot of time on, uh, on zoom calls and, and team meetings and, and things like that, because, uh, you know, I found that there's, uh, there's a lot of people that want information. And, um, when I retired, uh, people asked me what I was going to do. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to take the, the knowledge I've built up over 45 years of research and figure out how to apply that to agriculture and and everything so uh, but the nice thing about retirement is that uh, uh you know I, I don't do early morning meetings and i i don't do afternoon meetings so you know you, you kind of have a limited space uh, when you work around <laughs> and everything so you can always say you know nope I've, I've got other things to do this afternoon so <laughs> well that's the way it should be and uh it's, it's pretty exciting and I want you to dive into a little bit of your journey, Jerry, of, of uh, just how you came along to have an understanding of, of all the interconnectedness, not only from a, a agricultural system, but now you're looking at even, even bigger things. So I, I won't steal the thunder there, but kind of just tell us your story and, and yeah. the journey that you've been on and, and uh, uh, just, just where that has led you to today. Yeah, that, uh, that that'll be that can be the first hour of the broadcast, uh, Monty. Okay. And <laughs> in terms of, <laughs> terms of, of looking at this, but uh, if, if you look at this, uh, uh, I have a pretty interesting background. Uh, my my bachelor's is in agronomy, but uh, I, I think I'm the only uh, agronomy major at K State that uh, actually squeaked by with the minimum. Uh, number of credits in their major because I was taking math and physics courses. Uh, so that tells you that I'm a little bit strange uh, from that standpoint uh, in terms of looking at the different ways in which we could uh, develop analytics. Uh, I got a master's out of the University of Kentucky uh, looking at uh, uh, how plants responded to uh, soybean uh, germination processes developed some pretty unique uh, aspects there but I got very interested when I was in Kentucky and saying there's there's more to this in uh, system in terms of the environmental impacts of uh, on agriculture and uh, so I was looking around for a PhD program 
uh, and Iowa State offered me a teaching assistantship. And so I, I got my PhD in, 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 uh, at Iowa State in agricultural climatology with a minor in statistics. So I, I truly have gone <laughs> in all sorts of different ways uh, in all of this, but the, the bottom line of this and, and really why I have an interest is in uh, looking at the system of agriculture. Uh, what is that connectivity between the soil and the plant and the atmosphere? Uh, you know, and it, you really start looking at this, you, you begin to see some of these things that uh, uh, that people are concerned about today. You know, what's going to happen with these rising temperatures? What's going to happen with the rising CO2? What's all the variability of rainfall uh, going to do for an agricultural system? So, you know, I've been very blessed over time uh, in terms of being able to uh, carve out a, a research program that... Uh, really looked at the dynamics of agriculture and in the last 10 years really developed a concept that we call genetics by environment by management uh, g by e by m and it's a departure obviously from the old classic genetics by environment that breeders use uh, because the the dynamics in that is that we're very interested in <clears throat> what is happening with uh, the management aspects and how are they overcoming the environmental variation that's out there, whether it be soil or, or weather. And then how do you use that to optimize the, the uh, genetics? And so producers look at this and say, well, that's what we do in farming. Yes, that is what you do in farming. Uh, but you know, now we're trying to get quantitative tools to say, you know, where, where's the best genetics fit into this? And then what is that real role of uh, environmental variation? So if we have dry periods or we have wet periods, uh, you know, what's going to happen to our agricultural system uh, and all of this. So, you know, it, it's just really a kind of a fascinating area uh, looking at how do, how do we bring these pieces together? But it goes back to this aspect of saying the, the producer ultimately is making the management decisions. There are things that they can control, but there are things that they can't control. And so how do you really look at that optimization of a, a pretty interesting biological system that, uh, you know, we, we all think that uh, we can achieve 300 bushel corn continuously uh, and everything else. We find out there are parts of the field that don't respond that way. And so that's really kind of been... Uh, how do how do we develop a framework that that really draws the best of our scientific information together, and then even spit it out at the other end, and saying we're not only interested in yield, but we're also interested in the quality of that product as well. And so there's there's some fascinating pieces in all of this that uh, go along, and and you know they're all interrelated and. We need to start thinking differently about agriculture in terms of the, the system dynamics, because it is the, the interactions that are going on, I'll be quite honest, is that as scientists, we're not very good at interactions. <laughs> um, we like main effects, you know, what's the effect of nitrogen or what's the effect of phosphorus or what's the effect of, uh, of a, a new hybrid uh, on this, but when you say, What's the effect of um, the increasing temperature during August uh, on uh, different genetic material and with uh, uh, extremes in water and nitrogen management? You know, we go, we kind of get glassy-eyed at that point because we don't understand all those different nuances that are happening. Yeah, it's hard to extrapolate all that with the statistics and and uh, having a clean hypothesis. So, I I really appreciate your holistic thinking. You know, I, I, um, I think a lot of that's missing and, and we've become very silo oriented in, in research. So I, I think you uh, uh, make a lot of people stretch their imaginations on what they should be looking at. Uh, one of those things that, that really stood out to me, and, and this is, you know, I'm, so this has been a while ago, Jerry, so you're going to have to correct all the mistakes I make here. But I, I remember you were doing um, a series of studies, I think it was eight or nine locations across Iowa where you're comparing no-till, uh, conventional till, and I think strip-till. And then later on, you added a hog manure uh, portion to that. 
Uh, and then later on, on top of that, you started adding carbon sensors within the canopy. And this is what really stood out to me. You're trying to better understand carbon flux mm -hmm. and, and how overnight uh, carbon dioxide levels right near the soil surface, because you had these sensors at, I believe, 6, 12, 24 inches and at six feet oh, yeah. above the canopy <laughs> or eight feet. And uh, you, you enjoyed the, all the hard work it took to put those out there. But, you know, uh, boilerplate, what I remember, or boiling it down to what I remember is, um, you know, right before sunup, the carbon dioxide levels at near the soil surface were 2x of the atmosphere. And then within two hours of sunup, uh, carbon dioxide levels were equal to atmosphere. And about four hours after sunup, they were half of the atmosphere. So you were trying to document that huge carbon swing within a within a canopy and um that i think has been really kind of foundational in understanding how plants work right and how their forage quality is optimized and why you want to wait to cut maybe forages before you know 10 hours after sunup or, or excuse me four hours after sunup and, and those kind of things share some of that early work that you did and how that kind of laid that foundation of that understanding between those different systems and the carbon flux and those kind of things. Yeah, I mean, if you look at this, um, probably if I had known what I know now in designing that experiment, I would have probably designed it a little bit differently. But, uh, you know, you just launch in and you do things. Uh, and, you know, what we, uh, because it's uh, uh, the, the dynamics of carbon. I mean, you think about, uh, people always ask me, how does carbon get into the soil? Well, carbon doesn't get into the soil magically it, it requires a plant to, to, to extract it from the atmosphere and what we were trying to do in, in a lot of those experiments is saying what are the real dynamics of what's going on out here and and when you start looking at uh, uh, not only profiles of, of co2 within the app uh, within a plant canopy and and then the uh, uh, we actually did profiles of water vapor within that canopy as well and it really kind of went back to my original, my PhD work was actually on how light was intercepted by a corn canopy as, as it filters down through there and what changed. So, you know, now we're looking at photosynthetic processes uh, going on. But what we, you're right, what we discovered was that in a, in a really dense corn canopy, uh, you know, anytime you get uh, above a leaf area index of four, which is about, you know, halfway through the vegetative period, is that 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 canopy is pretty dense <laughs> there's a lot of things happening in there uh it's very efficient at absorbing light uh, and it's very efficient at absorbing co2 and so uh people always thought that well if this plant's respiring at night uh you know what's you know we're just losing all that co2 back to the atmosphere and what we discovered is that because now you had one other piece of the puzzle is that not only is it uh, respiring at night, but that uh, within that canopy is a pretty calm environment. There's not a lot of wind that gets in there. So anything that moves out, uh, unless it's a really windy night, uh, it stays right there. And because the, the major question that people were asking is saying, well, if we improve soil, we improve the carbon content of soil, and we increase the respiration rate coming out of the soil, all we're going to do is add CO2 back to the atmosphere. Right. Well, a good corn canopy never lets CO2 go to waste. Let's put it this way. <laughs> Any canopy, right? Anything okay. in nature doesn't let a precious resource go to waste. CO2, you know, plants love CO2. I mean, we, we talk about this rising CO2 levels and plants say, you know, bring it on. We're, we're happy. <laughs> you know? And so, you know, they're, you bring know, it, we bring another we, egg to the college party, you know, come on. Yeah. You know, it's, it's about what it is, you know, it's, it's, you know, let's, <laughs> yeah. We thought we were having a one kegger and now we got a two kegger. And so life's really good, you know? <laughs> you know? And so, but you look at that and, and, that was part of the reason of that study saying, what are the dynamics that are going on within canopies? And, and we'd find out that uh, the CO2 levels would get to a thousand parts per million. That's roughly twice. It's over twice what it is. But as soon as that sun came up and 
the uh, sun started shining on those leaves, you could just watch that CO2 disappear uh, from the top to the bottom of that canopy. And then all of a sudden it got down to about 290, 280 parts per million, which is kind of the equilibrium point on C4 plants. I mean, it was amazing to just watch that go back and forth. But the other piece that we discovered, which is really pretty interesting, is that when we were observing those CO2 levels, the really hot nights that we were having were increasing that CO2 level even more. And so if you take and start looking at a total budget of carbon dioxide between daytime hours and nighttime hours, is that when you get these really warm conditions, we weren't very efficient in filling grain because all we were doing was respiring that carbon back into CO2 uh, that was in the canopy and the plant would take it up the next day. Um, you say, well, it didn't go to waste, but it, yes, it didn't go to waste, but it didn't add the grain filling. And so, you know, when you see those really small kernels, uh, you know, it's, it's a result of the fact that uh, we have these hot nighttime conditions that basically increase respiration rates. Uh, and we verified in that in growth chambers as well. So, I mean, it's, so you look at uh, the uh, influences on um, corn and soybean production. Uh, when we started doing some very detailed analysis across the Midwest is that uh, yields uh, were determined by July maximum temperatures. So we get these really high uh, maximum temperatures in July. Uh, we disrupt pollination. Uh, and you couple that with water stress, you, you uh, reduce yield. Uh, August minimum temperatures. Uh, and, and that's basically just what we we're talking about. It is respire, so it's not as efficient in filling grain. Uh, and then uh, obviously, July, August rainfall. We've got to have rainfall in July and August to, to make grain. Uh, and so you look at all this thing. And so now you've got this combination of effects of CO2 and water and temperature all going on within this plant canopy. And, and then we're seeing, you know, their hybrid differences and how they respond uh, and all of this. So it gives us an understanding of saying, let's start looking at this system from an entirely different perspective. And how do we manage them? Why do why aren't plants more efficient? Why can't we always get to that 600 bushel of genetic potential out there? Well, there are a lot of things that happen, and, and understanding that uh, gives us some ways in which we ought to be approaching this problem. And, and really, I think that early on research, you know, the, the timing of that again was was impeccable because about the same time, a lot of funding came into the ag. Uh, research community, all uh, with a keyword of climate change. And yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that, you know, carbon being, you know, it was, I think it was outstanding how you and the teams that you interacted with really coordinated to utilize this research for uh, carbon, not only to benefit the environment and climate change, but also to benefit uh, our understandings of growing crops and uh, how carbon cycles within the within the whole which we really still don't fully understand but uh <laughs> talk to us a little bit about okay so now you've you've done the the atmospheric and this plant interaction water vapor temperatures and all that that's all part of a climate change model too right right but <laughs> farmers are getting useful information out of this at the same time so i, I think it's amazing how you've you wove those together not a us versus them but how can this be a, a system benefit for both the climate and, and the farmer? But then you start looking into soil dynamics and, you know, I, I know you've been involved in, in myriads of projects of how to sequester carbon biochar and all those things. So what was the next step when you, when you kind of dove into how soil carbon flux happens and. Yeah, it's uh soil carbon flux, uh, obviously going back, I mean, it requires a plant. Uh, I mean, we're taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. We're creating a very simple sugar. Uh, you know, that's the first uh, step in photosynthesis. You know, part of that uh, fascinating things we've been working on lately is, uh, you know, really what happens in that CO2 that's taken out from the atmosphere goes down into that leaf. Some of it gets transported into the root. Uh, 
there's some uh, fascinating pieces of literature now that are coming out saying that a lot of those sugars uh, that are exuded by roots are feeding the microbial systems. And, you know, it's that relationship. Now we'll add one more complexity. Not only do we have a plant, we have soil. Now we got the microbial system in here, uh, you know, that's doing all sorts of things. And, you know, those, you've got fungi and bacteria all working together around that root. And so what's going on <laughs> in this system that ultimately is driven by, you know, what plants out there. And, and you think about the, the dynamics of this. So uh, we have a, um, we have a plant, we uh, grow that plant, we add a little bit more carbon into that soil, we improve the biological activity of that soil. Uh, and the next year we can grow a little better plant because we've improved the soil. And so now we put more sugar in there. We have more biological activity. We improve the soil even more. And so the, uh, the dynamics of this uh, in terms of how do they influence things that now begin to change microbial activity, uh, obviously. And then you, you think about what that microbial activity does. It uh, stabilizes aggregates, uh, uh, it increases the infiltration and water storage capacity. It uh, uh, cycles nutrients and all of this. And we, we see this throughout the whole plant growing season. So what is really leading us to is the fact that we cannot come into a, an agricultural system and say, uh, let's look at tasseling <laughs> in corn and say, you know, this is what's going on. We've got to look from the time that seed goes in the ground until it's, it's harvested at the end to understand just the complexity of these interactions that are going on. Uh, one of the things that we discovered in all of this is just how fragile uh, this system is, because if you take uh, a, a corn soybean system, uh, and you till that, uh, it, they deep rip in the fall and then maybe field cultivate in the spring. Uh, you know, you, we, we find that we're losing a thousand pounds of carbon per acre per year. Uh, and so, you know, that's a, you go, well, that's only half a ton. Uh, you know, we got 2 million pounds of soil in that plow layer out there. So, you know, it's, that's not bad, but if you farm 20 years or 40 years, you've lost 20 tons of carbon. And we see this across the Midwest. I mean, we, we continue to see degradation of organic matter contents. Uh, but, you know, as we begin to uh, decrease our tillage intensity, add the crops that add more uh, carbon back into that soil, uh, then you begin to see uh, this rapid change in carbon. And everybody wants to say, well, this, we can just look at soil organic matter. Well, that's, that's only one piece of the puzzle because you've got stable carbon. You've got all these unstable pieces of the carbon puzzle out there. What kind you of got, carbon is it, correct? Yeah. Or is it humus? And there's well, a you know, it, in between, you know? <laughs> you know it, yeah, it's, it's this whole continuum of, uh, of carbon across there. And so you got bug bodies uh, that are out there. I mean, a lot of those are storing carbon is in their uh, cellular structure and everything else. And, you know, it doesn't make it into organic matter, but it's, it's carbon that's in that soil. And, you know, and they're having all, they're having all sorts of positive values from that standpoint. So it's, it, now we've just become more complex in terms of this but i think we've now gone to the level of saying it, it, we think about the complexity but now we understand why we have the complexity that we do uh and you start looking at this and saying let's let's add um uh, organic matter back into that you know you mentioned biochar uh as as an additive uh, in there well one of the things that biochar does is that you know it improves the physical structure of that soil but it also is a great hotel <laughs> for for the microbes there's a lot of intercellular spaces that uh, microbes can glom onto or fungi can glom onto that these got water and nutrients kind of in those little spaces so i think we need to think differently about even what uh, what we put in there and what we do with all that right and yeah not all carbon is the same is is the key point there and i I found it interesting while you said it's fragile, 
you know, what um, carbon in the soil is with a tillage event. But also earlier before that, you're saying that we can make this continuous improvement in, in soil mm -hmm. quality quickly. So what I think is um, when you're dealing with, um, you, know, you know, soil that's considered to be uh, old, but it's, it's amazing how rapidly we can improve or how rapidly we can degrade soil. And it's, it's sometimes a matter of just one simple decision that right. can make a dramatic difference. And uh, my personal least favorite tool is the high-speed disc, mock till, um, turbo till, these kind of things. Yep. First off, they're a lot of fun to drive, right? Because you're going fast and, and you got big horsepower. So, I mean, for a farmer, it's a it's a Tim Allen oh, 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 you know, kind of <laughs> mo moment to do it, right? But that one simple decision to do that really can change everything. From what you're what you're talking about there you might have the residues incorporating but what was there from the past either simple saccharides and microbial food that's all been oxidized so yeah in fact uh, we we ran another experiment in which uh, based on our observation that uh, the conventional systems were losing those thousand pounds of carbon so we took another field same instrumentation you know with the fluxes and everything else and we changed it over to a no-till cover crop system and when after the first year we went from a negative carbon balance to a positive carbon balance uh we, we were accruing about 300 pounds of uh, of carbon in that first year which is a it's pretty remarkable change in that but at the end of the, the second year, when we went back and did some very detailed sampling, we had doubled the microbial biomass in that upper six inches across those fields. And so we were putting a lot into that biological activity, uh, putting a lot into that system and all of this. So, you know, things occur quickly. And so I get very frustrated with people say, well, you know, take decades to change organic matter um yeah it may take decades to change organic matter with the way in which we sample it but i can tell you that things respond within a growing season in fact we've seen uh, aggregates begin to change within 140 days of uh, of, of manipulating a system uh, you know in a growth chamber and everything else so i mean that there is mother nature is going to respond quickly to, to what we do to it, uh, both in a positive and a negative direction. So uh, we just got to figure out uh, what direction to maybe push it at times. <laughs> We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. Be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now back to our show. The, the, the takeaway from that is there's hope, right? There's hope that we can regenerate soils and we can do it quickly if we do the right practice by your G by E by M. You know, so that's, that's kind of the, right. uh, the capstone there of, of looking at how we manage it. We, we can make res changes in resiliency quickly. It's just, can we make changes between this uh, six inches between our ears, this, this really heavy, really high bulk density in this, in this gray matter up here, Jerry. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The highest bulk density may be the six inches between the years, but um, you know, you, you look at all this and, and I think that, uh, you know, that's what I, I, I get very frustrated with the discussion about carbon markets is because we, we talk about the value of carbon markets in terms of reducing CO2 and ag is a great sequester of carbon and everything else and saving the planet. Uh you know, and, and all of those things are good, but, uh, you know, the, my pitch to, is to the producers is what's the real value of carbon to you? Uh, you know, what does that carbon mean for your system? Now, I'll just give you an example of, uh, 
some work that we've done with uh, Wayne Fredericks up in Northern Iowa. Uh, um, Wayne gave us uh, a set of data um, from 2000 to 2000. Well, actually, we got it through 21 now. But uh, you know, we Wayne and I got very curious of what was changing within those systems as he went to reduce tillage, and then he started adding cover crops. Uh, but uh, what we did with his data, this is data across 10 fields. So it's not just a single field, it's 10 fields. Uh, and we took the yield monitor data uh, within those 10 fields and we sliced it by the soil type within the field. And so we put a mask on it. Uh, and because what we began to discover is that as we were improving organic matter through reducing tillage intensity, is that uh, those the yields within each of those soil types was becoming more uniform, uh, you know, and and you start looking at that, they're becoming more uniform. They were becoming more water use efficient. They were becoming more nutrient use efficient because he hadn't changed his uh, nitrogen application and yet was producing a lot more crop, and producing a lot more crop per uh, uh, inch of rainfall during the growing season. So. You start looking at that, and, and I've talked to more and more producers about this, saying, what have you observed in your fields? Uh, you know, not going to the intensity in which we did Wayne's analysis, and they said, well, you know, our fields are becoming more uniform. Uh, and you look at that. So that's the value of, of this, because you get those low-yielding parts out, that's profit. Uh, and so there's a value of carbon that uh, is way beyond the 10 or $20 a ton that we talk about for the carbon markets. Now we're talking, you know, a hundred to $200 uh, return across parts of those fields. So getting producers to understand why do they have the variation that they have and, and how, what's their management plan to be able to overcome that variation. And what do you observe from year to year in terms of the changes that are out there? And I think that's, you know, even if we're focused on carbon for a, a carbon contract, you know, maybe that's the, the wrong primary reason. The, the good part is, is that uh, uh, all of the benefits to the farmer are going to, to align, you know, so like you said, increased water infiltration, holding capacity, better nutrient cycling, uh, more consistent yields. We see that consistently. Uh, so that, that's, uh, those are all great things. So I know a lot of your, uh, you know, a lot of your activity involved with the Tri-Societies, um, uh, Soil Science and Crop Science and Agronomy uh, Society of Americas, um, you were you were quite the cat herder uh, <laughs> <laughs> in those things. So talk to what it's like to to go with coordinated efforts uh, to, to accomplish research uh, across multiple sites and multiple uh, researchers aiming at that, uh, the climate change type of initiative things that you've, you've done, uh, what, what that's like to, to get meaningful research done that can impact a farmer. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, I think you, you start getting that question in terms of meaningful research that, that impacts a producer. Uh, the first critical step in that is involving the producer. Uh, too often in a lot of our research and, and producers will, will tell you this, that they don't, they don't trust small plot research uh, because it doesn't, they can never identify with a, a four row by or six row by 50 foot plot out there and say, what does that represent? Uh, um, I remember when we did a study across, the, and you mentioned it earlier, uh, a study across Iowa where we were comparing uh, no-till, strip-till, moldboard plow, and, and chisel plow uh, across multiple sites in Iowa. When we first went to the producers and said, you know, we want to we, we want to run this study, we want to look at this, and the producers said, you, you were interested in this, but there's always a but, but <laughs> we want to, we want to see these comparisons across fields. We don't want to see them in a uh, nice little replicated plot at the end of the field. So we ran those strips across um, soils within the field, uh, you know, up and down landscapes. Uh, I mean, because we were in southeast and northeast um, or northwest Iowa and everything. So we got all these. And, and I think that was 
that was instructive in saying they want to see how these things respond in in the fields in which they're operating and they want to see how it's benefiting or not benefiting of what they're doing as well and so i think if we want to get the research translated into practice is that we have to involve the producer as, as part of conducting that research. And, and, you know, that always doesn't, you know, people get heartburn <laughs> across that because, well, you know, what do you have for uh, a true statistical test? What do you have for, uh, you know, a nice replicated experiment out there? Well, I mean, we have statistical techniques that allow us to look at field scale that, uh, are way beyond the old classic randomized complete block design anymore. I mean, we can draw inferences uh, out of data sets. Uh, it's a matter of getting the question out there, getting the players involved, and, and uh, collecting the correct information uh, as we go along. But, you know, that's that's the first step is is if we want to impact the producer, is the producer's got to be part of the solution and part of the questioning. Yeah, and I, I agree, and especially when you're looking at systems. Uh, instead of just isolated one product and, and such. And if there could be more of a, a way for, uh, you know, scientists to come alongside producers and quantify what they're doing, I, I think that can make, uh, like you said, uh, more lasting changes and, and a better understanding of what's happening in a, in a system. Uh, so hopefully that <laughs> continues to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think it. I think it will. I think that producers are becoming. Uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of producers have become their own experimentalists. Uh, you know, they try all sorts of different things in their fields. Uh, I think we can uh, work with them in terms of you know are the validity of those results. Uh, going back to the discussion about uh, continuous improvement and adaptive management. You know, they're trying different techniques. Well. How's, how does it work within a field? Uh, you know, and, and did it work? Um, I always use this as a uh, as an acid test of, of how the producers thought about uh, some of the things that we wanted to do. Is that if uh, if a producer said, you know, that that's a good idea, but we're going to put it on this field that's farthest from the road. You know, I, I felt that they didn't have a lot of confidence that uh, this was going to work. But if they felt that this was a pretty interesting system, they'd put it out next to the road. Uh, and so I always use that distance test <laughs> from the neighbors. <laughs> Is that one of the you... variables that you put into the statistics? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> distance from a hard road. <laughs> yeah, distance from the hard road. Uh, you know, and, and you went, you, you know, we talked about the CO2 pieces and some of the other ones. Is that, you know, uh, people always ask where I got some of the, the wild and crazy ideas that we've done over time. And, and part of that has is, is come from producers uh, saying, you know, we need to understand how this works. And so a lot of it is a, is a pretty interesting dialogue saying, yeah, we, we don't understand this. And, you know, what's going on with interactions of nitrogen and water? Uh, you know, how do we how do we look at at all of this and how do we how do we look at this system differently and so if we add that cover crop what's it doing uh you know and so a lot of those crazy things that that we've done over time are yeah I'll just lay at the foot of the producers that uh, <laughs> planted a seed <laughs> and saying you know we don't we don't understand this and you got to help us right and, and you and you've done that by being in the field too uh oh, yeah getting out there to see it and i think that's uh one of the keys to uh, the immense amount of uh, work that you've accomplished over time is, is being in the field. And I, I think uh, too often we, um, you know, others can send too many grad students and such to go do the work versus, uh, you know, you, you put, you've cast your shadow in a lot of fields, Gary. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I was a very poor administrator probably. <laughs> direction. You know, I, I, I love to interact with the producers and that's, what's been so enjoyable about the last two and a half years is that, you know, I, I do interact with lots of different producers and we have some pretty interesting discussions going on. But not too early in the morning and not in the afternoon. See, that's, that's correct. Yeah, well, you know, you I gotta do catch have... Jerry between nine and noon. So <laughs> nine and two. Yeah, that's uh, a true banker. Uh, but uh, 
<laughs> you know, and so you, you look at this, uh, I, I think that egg has, egg has challenges. I mean, how, how do we, how do we really feed the world of the future? Uh, you know, and I, I think that that's a phrase that often gets thrown out there and, uh, you know, you got two camps. One is that you can either, you're either an optimist or a pessimist in that statement. And, you know, that, uh, you know, we're all going to die of starvation, uh, or that ag will overcome it. And, and I actually believe that ag can overcome this, but we're going to have to start thinking differently about how do we, how do we get the most out of every acre of soil? Uh, how do we get the most out of every, uh, hybrid or, or variety that we put out there? How do we get the most out of every product that we apply out there? Uh, and so it's, it's not a matter of saying there is a silver bullet. It's a matter of saying, we've got to look at this from a, uh, from a systems dynamics and really bring in some pretty inquisitive questioning uh, in terms of saying, why don't these things work? Or, you know, I, I think a lot of times that we, we often uh, put things in the camp of saying, well, you know, I tried this and it didn't work. And the other person tries that and it works. Well, what do we learn from our failure? What do we learn from our successes? Uh, and so you, you talked about what we were doing in the tri societies because um, I, I continue to, <laughs> do all sorts of interesting things but one of the journals that uh, we started about five years ago is uh, agri-systems geosciences and environment but the unique part of that journal is that we will publish negative results uh, and so and we'll we'll publish short-term experiments so if you've got an experiment that that failed but we think is really high quality science we'll still publish it there because I think a lot of times we repeat the same thing because people never understand. Yeah, you it never was out there. for somebody else, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, oh, that is awesome because there's so much that is is not published, like you said, in the failures. They only publish the success. Well, and and it's also the place in which we can put a lot of the on-farm experimentation uh, pieces out there. Uh, uh, and all of this so that we can begin to draw this information together uh, and, and help, uh, help consultants, help scientists, uh, you know, or help consultants and, and industry people interpret these for the producer as well. So, and I don't think there's any such thing as a failure. I, I think it's just a, uh, it, it's a, uh, as one farmer says, a there's really not a failure. It's just a result I didn't expect. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> sometimes they do fail but uh you know why do they fail and, and and what can we learn from that so every every day is a learning experience absolutely absolutely and i learn a lot from failures um <laughs> not only not what to do but uh also what i should have done and, and i think those those are all key key things so early on, before we started recording, uh, you mentioned there was uh, some technologies, emerging technologies that you're you're pretty excited about. They're going to be part of <laughs> part of this system, and uh, you didn't share anything about it, so it's, it's a surprise to me too. So, go ahead and uh, share some of these things that you're you're looking into and and have run across that um, you think offer some great hope for for the future in agriculture. Well, I, I think that that part of this, and I'll kind of break it into. Uh, uh, Two different categories. Uh, the first category is uh, is observational <laughs> technologies. I mean, uh, I've been involved in remote sensing since uh, the early '70s when Landsat was up there and, and things like this. And you know, we we always ooh and all over the pictures that we can make with satellites and things like this. But I think we're now getting to the point of how can we take that information and really help producers build that library of, of what's happening across their fields. And so we're looking on some technologies of, of how can we really uh, build a, a system that, that monitors that field and allows us to look at it 
not only this year, but last year, what's changed from year to year uh, in this and, uh, and all of this. And so uh, I think that those, that's one of the technologies that we're looking at right now is how do we utilize that? Uh, the other one is the uh, observational techniques of, of how do we really sample soils? Uh, I mean, you really get into this and, and I mean, we, you know, are you in the two and a half acre grid or are you in the random <laughs> uh, soil sampling or are you in the one acre grid? Uh, I mean, how, you know, and, and all of this, you know, they, they all have pluses and minuses, uh, but, you know, how do we really sample that? Uh, you know, I think one of the frustrations everybody has in the carbon market is that we're trying to look at the whole profile of the soil, you know, that five foot profile, but we're only sampling the other six to 12 inches saying well you know what's going on underneath and so how do how do we build some other technologies that allows us to sample that uh, uh, can we uh, analyze that soil in the field so that we're not carting uh, everything back to the lab uh, and how do we how do we utilize those technologies and then the the other piece is really kind of the the, the technology piece is how can we use uh, things like machine learning and artificial intelligence. I mean, you start looking at all the information that's flowing in from a from a producer or from a tractor now. I mean, you look at all the, the information flow is how can you use that to say, this is what happened in this part of the field. Uh, now with all the spatial technologies that we have, bring it together and say, yeah, we can do, now we understand why this part of the field didn't respond the way it did. And so it's an integration of information that, that kind of puts us beyond uh, our capabilities. Uh, uh, you know, and, and not that we should fully trust computers to, to make decisions for us, <laughs> but they, they can amass uh, information and, and uh, crunch numbers in, in ways in which, you know, we can look at that and say, this is kind of what's going on. But, uh, you know, they're, they're going to develop some relationships and uh, looking at some of the, the system dynamics that uh, we don't have the, we don't have the mental capacity. Uh, not only do we, are we pretty dense between these ears, but uh, we, we often think in preconceived relationships. Exactly. Uh, and I think we've got to get past some of our preconceived ideas. Uh, that's what I'm most excited about on AI is that uh, there's there's no emotions and there's no hurt feelings. Uh, so, you know, understanding that maybe something you thought to be true before, all of a sudden the data set's saying it isn't, that's an awful hard pill to swallow. And uh, plus the immense amount of information, especially what you're talking about with uh, systems-based research, right. when we've got so many inputs and in so many variabilities within year and year to year, um, you know, having the ability to, quantitatively compute that is is wonderful if we could we can get machine learning or, or ai to to tackle those things and we're close aren't we oh yeah i mean we're very close i mean we've we've put uh, some of the ai through uh different pieces and uh because one of the uh, one of the dynamics was saying how could we really detect when tasseling has occurred on corn you know switch from that vegetative to the reproductive stage well I mean, we've we've played around with all sorts of different indices, but we just fed the data into the computer and threw out all that, and it came up with some different relationships and wavelengths <laughs> in terms of some of the remote sensing that uh, we hadn't even tried before, hmm. and you know they're pretty stable over time. Uh, and, and so you look at all this and saying, yeah, let's get some of the emotion out. <laughs> Computers are. Well, I don't know. There are days I think they have emotions because they like to frustrate us. But, <laughs> you know, that, uh, you know, you, you look at all this and saying, let's take an entirely different view of, of the system and, and how things are interacting that uh, we didn't consider before. Because we go into every problem in agriculture and we, we come in with our preconceived biases well, is it a, you know, if, it, if it's a failure out there, obviously it's a hybrid problem. <laughs> or, you know, if we put a, uh, a different uh, product into that system, uh, obviously it's a failure of that product. Well, it could have been a simple thing like uh, it didn't rain. 
<laughs> in a two-week period that that we saw some of the things occur out there and so we we in the computer just emote emotionless takes and, and begins to say you dummy get up <laughs> if, if you realize that it didn't rain for two weeks and that's why it didn't respond the way it did you know <laughs> exactly well the best part is is once we can get that to where we better understand what the interactions are now then we can create a yield prediction model which mm -hmm. has kind of been the the holy grail and and i remember doing a, a project on that in college and uh, we're still not there yet uh, but we can we can get to some yield prediction model or we can run some what ifs ahead of time so i can have this field and i say okay i want this hybrid uh with what would basically the you know uh we'll have to have the the ellen taylor module attached to it you know what the what the weather is going to be next year <laughs> uh, you know uh those kind of predicted and and get really a distribution curve of what the predicted outcome would be and and uh, definitely will build in more resilience uh for a farmer in in revenues uh and you can also then use those things to hit certain goals. You know, maybe you have, uh, you know, certain crop rotations or crop selections are, are better at improving carbon sequestration than others. And that can be built into that model. And you can look at not just what I'm going to plant next year, but uh, here is what I'm going to plant over the next 10 years. And <laughs> instead of two crops, it can be nine crops. And we can see what all those interactions are with each other, which uh, is a, is a real headache when you're doing it now with an Excel spreadsheet, right? Yeah, Excel isn't isn't very good on spatial dynamics. No, um, <laughs> you, got, you, and, got, and, you got me banging a keyboard on an Excel spreadsheet, so I say, you know, that's about as bad as it can be, right? Well, you know, you got the. <laughs> I, I think agriculture is the ultimate spatial temporal uh, problem yeah. out there, and and you know, I think the more that we can get technologies to to look at this, but. But really the, looking at those future choices. Oh, I, yeah. Is that, that's what I'm getting at is I'm trying yeah. to best guess where am I going to be in crop rotation for the next five years? And that's, uh, yeah, it's it's a, a wag. <laughs> well, it, it is a wag. And, you know, I look at this and saying, but let's uh, um, let's look at this. And, and I think it, it feeds nicely into this uh, dynamic of uh, the adaptive management so let's set up our five-year plan mm -hmm. but as as we look at the end of the first year and we say well this didn't quite work it didn't quite give me the response uh what went on and then you you make that tweak and then you look at it the the, the next year and and it's, so it's a continuous improvement process uh and looking at the at the spatial dynamics within the field or the or the temporal changes out there in a lot of cases uh, going back to the example is that you know we we often tend to blame lack of response on um the one management piece <laughs> that that we did so you know we 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 put a product on <laughs> or we we switched uh, fertilizer application timing and so well obviously that didn't work and you, you find out that in the grand scheme of things it had nothing to do with that it was the fact that it didn't rain for that two-week period uh that uh, was critical to uh, to grain development and i, I think that uh, i always tell producers that uh, if if we really look at um, the dynamics of crops let's go back and start looking at the yield components i mean let's look at uh, going back to the to corn you know ear size uh, which is set really early uh, number of kernels, which is set, uh, you know, during the pollination phase and then size of that kernel, which is really determined with the grain filling period. Well, all of those add up to what we get in yield, but they occur at different parts of the season. And so it's not a one-time thing. Even soybeans are not a one-time thing. Um, and, and wheat is not either. And so you look at all our different crops that we grow, getting much more analytical, about how that yield got there 
and and what caused that different response out there uh, I think will give us new insights of how we need to be looking at the system so some of the technologies we're looking at are basically that continuous yield progression <laughs> monitor uh, and saying let's let's look at, at what's going on and let's look at the uh, efficacy of that plan in terms of not only capturing carbon but utilizing water and nutrients efficiently yeah yeah and uh, I think that tools will get better and better for that to be able to make unbiased decisions. And uh, that's pretty exciting. And really it's all about like you, you know, were alluding to earlier, you know, we need to think of farming in a six Sigma kind of way, you know, yep. improvement <laughs> and, and, uh, and those kind of things. So I, um, I think farmers do that. They just don't know they're doing it. And I right. think we need to be more intentional about that. So, okay. Big picture here. You've been, been retired two and a half years, you know, you're, having your coffee uh, with your wife until, you know, your banker's hours and, you know, playing golf probably in the <laughs> afternoon and uh, causing, causing chaos and, and giving ideas for other people to have to do now. So uh, that's great. That's all part of it. But what do you think looking back on your, your, your career thus far um, or, or when you, uh, what do you think has been the biggest, uh, uh, or one one of your most proud contributions that you've that you've made. I you know looking back, I, I think some of the most uh, the the proud contributions is is being able to say you know I've I've helped agriculture, uh, and it's not a a single, not a single producer, not a single commodity, but basically said you know. This, this information helps agriculture become more resilient. It, it helped agriculture become more efficient. And being able to explain that to, to producers and saying, here's, here's a path forward uh, in all of this so that they can come in and say, you know, I was able to take that information and utilize it and put it into practice and, you know, it's a dialogue. I mean, a lot of this is, I've discovered that uh, nothing with a producer is a one and done thing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a basically, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier is the, the transformational agronomy. To me, the transformational agronomy is if we want to transform agriculture, it's about a relationship. Uh, and that, that proud moment that I have is basically saying, you know, I was able to impact uh, the agriculture as we have today and where we're going in the future. And, and, you know, I've continued to work in that whole vein and everything. That's what gets me up in the morning. Uh, keeps me excited about uh, where we're going. Well, I, I so appreciate all that you've done and all that you've contributed and all the, all the leadership you provided to farmers, but also to other researchers and, and, and pointing everyone in, in the direction that we need to be, be thinking and, and heading toward. I, I think that is uh, critical to the impact that, that you've made. And um, I, I've always enjoyed our discussions whenever we have a chance to bump into each other at various <laughs> meetings. And um, you're a lot of, you're fun, fun to interact with and, and people get need to get to know you if they don't. And it's just, it's amazing. Um, all the prolific work that, that you and your teams have done. It, it really well, is. Thank you. I am, I'm very appreciative. And, um, the only, the only last thing I got to ask is when are you running for president? I mean, uh, I, I really think, uh, the way you can navigate Washington and all these diverse groups, uh, you, I, I'm thinking, uh, 2028 or something, you know, whatever the year is, Jerry, I'm, now, I'm, I'm way too I'm old, old at that I'm point, Monty. uh, but you know, I think you look forward and saying, I can have a real impact on agriculture where I am today. And, um, uh, you know, and, and groups like, uh, you know, the big soil health event, uh, you know, we got another one coming up in December again. Uh, we got another offshoot of a meeting uh, at the end of that week in, in Kansas that they're trying to get people together on to, to start having a discussion with, with producers about where are they at, where can they go, uh, what are some of the technologies, and, and what are some of the questions they need to be asking. And I think you said something really key there, <clears throat> asking uh, everyone listening to this needs to ask themselves, what kind of an impact can I have on agriculture? And, right. and you can, right? 
Oh yeah. And if, you, and if you need help, Jerry will get out his jackhammer and, and work on the bulk density between the ears, right? You're yep. always happy to do that and uh, reach out to you. Anything else we should have uh, brought up in our time together today, Jerry? No, I, I think that's pretty good. We have to have another conversation sometime along uh, in all of this, but I, I, I'm optimistic about the future of agriculture. Uh, I think that we've got a lot of capabilities. Uh, we've got some, uh, uh, you know, our future world depends on us. Uh, but I, I think that we, we've got to come in and say, we've tried some things in the past. What can we do differently? And, and what can value can they add to us? Because I always uh, talk to uh, different groups saying, you know, what value are you really adding to the producer? And I think that's the way we need to be looking at this right now is saying, let's look at everything from a value add proposition uh, and saying, are you adding value to that producer's uh, system? Are you adding value to that producer's well-being? Uh, that that psychology and the sociology of the producer as well. Yep. Great questions to always ask. So thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's good to good to connect again. And uh, I wish you continued success and impact in, in everything that you're doing. Well, thank you. It's All been right. a pleasure. Take care. What a great conversation. While Jerry's bio says retired, he is far from retiring his involvement in helping growers change and challenge their ideas and thoughts as he helps them continue to pursue systems that can increase their production efficiency, increase soil health, and develop resiliency. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health, check out our website at asn.farm and there you can click on links to follow Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.